There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Hello and welcome to Intelligent Speech. This is the show uh, where I just do whatever I want, basically. Um, I just like to get in front of people who I admire, people who've got something interesting to say, people who I like, quite simply. And it's been one of the joys um, of me being on Clubhouse for the last, I don't know, three, four months that I've bumped into one Steve Crone. Now, when we first met each other, I took an instant dislike to him because he professed a love of a football <laughs> team, which is beyond the pale, as far as I'm concerned. That football team is, of course, Chelsea FC. But putting that to one side, um, our second encounter, I, I made a massive faux pas. I, I talked, somebody was talking about uh, the film The Matrix, and I went, oh, you know, it's all style over substance, not much to it, and whatever. And somebody said, Steve, wasn't that one of the films that you produced? He went, yep. So that, that was our second interaction. But... All that. I'm not kidding. I have no memory of what you just said. I don't recall you saying anything even remotely negative. I only recall the Matrix coming up. But so that's so interesting. I have no memory of that. I was utterly shamefaced. And I think it was Daniel that actually said, Steve, wasn't that one of your movies? But, but anyway, it was a wonderful introduction to the world of Steve Crone is somebody who um, seems to be somewhat of a polymath, seems to be a massive raconteur, not even seems to be, is uh, a wit, a bon viveur. If ever there is a topic that Steve Crone doesn't have some level of knowledge on, it's not worth knowing. Steve sits across two branches of American life and culture, the law and entertainment. He's a producer, he's a lawyer, he's a professor, and he's a bloody nice bloke as well. Uh, Steve, are we friends? Because I was trying to figure this out earlier today. What is the definition of a friend in the world of social media? Because I think back in the day, you'd say a friend is somebody who knows, you know, the name of your partner. It's probably been round to your house or at least, you know, works with you. Um, I don't know the name of your partner. We've never worked together, though we have hung out together once at a bar. So are we acquaintances are we friends what are we in this new digital social media age no of course we're friends and 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 by the way not be, that's not a commentary on anything about this quote unquote social media age uh, if 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 two people sort of follow each other on social media and have some kind of interaction i don't think that would necessarily make them friends but that has i, I mean like you said, what really happened with us is we met on Clubhouse. We interacted on some, some on Clubhouse. And now, you know, we've gotten together. We chat 
off of Clubhouse. I mean, yeah, of course we're friends. I mean, I, again, I, I don't think I'm saying anything profound about no, because the, the world of social media, but we're obviously friends. Well, it, it, here's the thing, right? Because spe- specifically on social media, relationships can be asymmetrical. Uh, people can reveal a lot about themselves or within the media or podcasting. So this is not necessarily a social media kind of comment. But I'm always struck when I do my podcasts and then I'll meet somebody. They will say something to me about one of my children. And I, for a second, I'm bamboozled. I'm like, how do you know that? But it, I've made some oblique reference in a podcast, you know, some years ago, some months ago. And that person's remembered it. And I think we almost have an asynchronicitous, asymmetrical relationship because we haven't massively spent a lot of time talking to each other one-on-one. I've been in your rooms, you've been in mine. And there's not a level of performance, but there's a certain level of, what, what, what am I trying to say here? How how can we quantify that in terms of a real relationship? Because it, it occurred to me today whilst doing these notes, I didn't know the name of your son, though I know that you have a son. I know that you've gone uh, to to naked spas with your son and his girlfriend, and <laughs> you you've driven actually up- actually, actually the, his cousin's my nephew's girlfriend, but close enough. But there you go. So I know lots of things about you, and the question is how much. Can I get to know about you and still not actually know you? Right. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's a couple strands to that. First of all, there are some people who indisputably would be described by just about anyone as friends. Take social media out of the equation. Um, They met through work or some other sort of professional-based contact. And they've become friends, but... It hasn't opened up into the realm of who are your children, some of that, that kind of stuff. I mean, so there's lots of kinds of friends, you know, I mean, there are friends with whom you're very intimate across every aspect of your life. Just as you say, you know, you may not know the names of my children. I think there are personal friends people have where they would undoubtedly say, yeah, oh, absolutely. She's a friend of mine. He's a friend of mine. And they don't know anything about your professional life oh, I think he's maybe a lawyer, or I think he teaches, or maybe he does something to do with movies, or maybe not even that much. That doesn't make them not friends. I mean, you know, there's just lots of different kinds of friendships on many different kinds of levels. I play football every weekend, as you know, with a group of guys. I've never socialized with any of them. One week after we played, there was a Champions League match on and we all went directly to a nearby place to watch that game. With that exception, I've never socialized with any of them. So they're certainly not intimates. They don't know a lot about my life. But we talk about those things while we're warming up and whatever. I would consider them, you know, my soccer friends. They're not not friends. It's just a very circumscribed sort of relationship at this point. What bracket would you put Barack Hussein Obama? I take it he's a soccer <laughs> friend. No, basketball is his sport. I, I would consider him a not at all close friend. Uh, we formed a friendship because uh, 
we shared a mentor, um, Abner Mikva. You know, when, when Barack was coming up, uh, his two big political mentors um, were Abner Mikva, who was a congressman from the Chicago area, and then a judge, ultimately chief judge of the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. And I worked for him after I graduated from law school. And he was also uh, Bill Clinton's White House counsel for a time. And um, the three of us all found ourselves teaching at the University of Chicago at the same time. And that's how I met Barack Obama and, um, you know, interacted with him a few times, attended uh, a big fun presidential fundraiser. Oh, my gosh, that's a story in itself. It was at Oprah's home in Montecito outside of Santa Barbara. Holy mackerel. That was a wild experience. So, yeah, hardly a close friend, more than an acquaintance. I didn't shake his hand once. But yeah, he's, it's not like he's a close friend of mine. I, I do know his kids' names, though. <laughs> <laughs> we need to go back. Uh, you need to set us uh, in, in your family circumstance because I know that you have an eccentric mother and you've talked about her and her name is Rhoda. And, and, and it's lovely when... Um, so I've got these two kind of bits of Steve. I've got... The anecdotal, I've got the person whose number is on my phone and I go into dishwasher diaries. And then I do an IMDb search and it mentioned your father. And it occurred to me, I've never heard you talk about your father, only your mother and her social faux pas. So tell us about Ma and tell us about Pa. Yeah, so first I just want to say happenstance. I think I talk about my mom slightly more because there's more funny stories, but I do talk about my dad quite a bit too. He was also quite a character. And um, I talk a lot about, you know, what he did when I was growing up and, and its influence on me. So my parents truly were originals. I mean, I grew up in a Woody Allen movie and I always say to people, this doesn't illustrate why they were so kooky, but Nonetheless, everyone at a certain age thinks their parents are weird. And, you know, when I was in junior high school and high school, that sort of, you know, whatever, 12, 13 to 16, 17, 18, I would say to friends, you know, if they were coming over, look, you know, my parents are weird. And they'd be, oh, yeah, yeah, my parents are weird too. And then they would meet my parents and they'd be like, okay, now, now you win, Steve, we get it. Um, it's hard to know where to start. I don't want to tell a bunch of anecdotes but rather just try to describe them. Um, my dad's first career was in show business. He was the MC and the entertainment director. He booked the acts at a very famous nightclub in Atlantic City called the 500 Club, which was run by Frank Sinatra's best friend, Paul Skinny D'Amato. So he grew up in that world around a lot of show people. He booked acts at the Catskills. He was a dandy, always very nicely dressed, got manicures, smoked a big cigar, was a real storyteller and a real comedian. He's In a way, he missed his calling. He should have been, uh, these are old names that many people won't recognize, but he should have been Alan King or Shecky Green or Jackie Mason, who recently passed away. He really was brilliantly funny and a real character. So that was kind of his personality. 
Um, my mom is just, oh my goodness, a, a live wire, no filter, would say whatever is on her mind. Sometimes it's very or was very entertaining. Sometimes it was shocking. But for the most part, people were kind of tickled by it because they, even when she said something that was really inappropriate, I think people generally felt like there, there was no malice there. There was just like she, there was a missing gene or something. And she just said whatever she was thinking, not to hurt people or to be mean, but just because that's the way her brain worked. I, I, and, and yeah, they were, they were real originals. So your father works, worked in the entertainment business. And I can only but imagine that you like you, you lived around stories, large personalities. How much of that do you think, um, because you, you are that, Steve, you, you are a great storyteller. You're a raconteur, as I said before. Um, how much of that do you think you absorbed or was actually physically within your DNA because you're your father's son? Yeah, I mean, I think clearly I absorbed it. I, 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 I don't know what the, what the mechanism is, but yeah, I mean, I, I definitely got that from my dad. And it's funny because I, I mean, there's my, my parents had three children. We're all pretty close in age. My brother is four years older than I am. My sister about a year and a half older than I am. And I would say of the three of us, it's not like we're carbon copies in that regard. I'm certainly the, the one who's most likely to be telling a funny anecdote. Um, my sister gabs and gabs and gabs like my mom, but she's not so much of a storyteller or a joke teller. And my brother, uh, the quietest of the three, but, but yeah, I mean, I certainly picked it up from both my mom and my dad, not just the storytelling, but also I'm kind of loud. I'm kind of in your face a little bit. And that was definitely my mom, not my dad. I mean, my dad was more of a performer. My mom, it was just, you know, like the burning bush. That's how she kind of moved through her day. So you move um, at the age of 12 from, from the East Coast to the West. Was this because your father got a new position within entertainment? Uh, tell us why the family moved and tell us <laughs> about your first impressions of uh, California. Yeah, so, so there were, there's a little bit of story in between. So... I was born in 1964. Atlantic City was already well on down its slow decline from its height, whether that was, I don't know, the 30s or the 40s. You know, it was a major beach resort. But by 1964, it was a shadow of, of its former self. The Miss America pageant still happened there. There were still tourists there, but it was sliding. So my father second career was as an auctioneer. And he had already started doing some of that, uh, you know, even when I was born. So he ultimately became an auctioneer full-time. Some of the same skills, right? He was on stage entertaining a crowd, but just also, you know, selling stuff. And he did that on the boardwalk. All of the moves after that were related to his career as an auctioneer. And we moved first to Las Vegas, uh, he followed his closest friend, lifelong friend. They were born three days apart and were best friends 
most of their life. Uh, also an auctioneer. He followed him out to Las Vegas. We lived there for a couple of years. Then we moved to Laguna and then ultimately to Los Angeles. And those were all moves related to my father's auction career, first working for others and then ultimately opening his own auction gallery in Los Angeles when I was 12. I left Atlantic City when I was eight and we landed in Los Angeles when I was 12. First impressions of of California because oh. you know Los Angeles is going to be your home and it's going and you're going to be in the middle of, of the movie industry so I want to hear about that kind of first impression and then Steve Crone I want you to tell us about Californian girls <laughs> um oh man so the, the, because, I wish you know, I had more interesting and, and, and here's the thing Steve because I've listened to you right and as open as you are in dishwasher diaries um there are there are bits of your life which you're very careful about and 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 girls and and your emotional relationships is definitely uh one of those so uh, be as delicate as you can but we but we need teenage steve before you go off uh, to law school and uh, and film school <laughs> well there's a lot yeah there's a lot in between so first i mean when i moved to los angeles I lived in a suburb, uh, the far, depending how you think about it, west, I guess the far southwest corner of the San Fernando Valley. I didn't know about Hollywood. I didn't know what CAA was. I didn't, I, I, I grew up in a suburb that probably wasn't wildly different than growing up in the distant suburbs of many other major U.S. cities, right? It's not like I didn't go to Beverly Hills High School and, you know, my friends were all in showbiz and that sort of thing. To be blunt, that's probably a little bit more how my kids grew up. But I, I didn't know from any of that stuff. So, I, so it wasn't, I mean, it was California in terms of weather, in terms of culture and political sort of orientation, but in terms of like the idea that I sort of moved to Hollywood and was sort of immersed in the world of entertainment or something like that. Not really. I mean, I took a bus when I was, before I could drive with a friend down to Hollywood and we would catch a movie in Hollywood Boulevard. We, you know, I would do the things that you could do in LA, but I wasn't like some showbiz kid or anything like that. So I don't have too much to say about that. And and it's but, but, funny. No one's ever asked. Or, were you sorry, into do you want to ask movies? Me? But were you into movies then? Because what you, these have been like oh, nineteen seventy six. Yes. So what we talked. Oh, I was into movies. And... Yeah, yeah. No, I was into movies long before I ever got to Los Angeles. I mean, I always loved movies. My grandmother. I didn't mention this. My mother's mother moved in when my brother was born, and as I mentioned, he's four years older than I, and she lived with us until she died on October 30th of my senior year of high school. So my entire childhood, from birth to my senior year of high school, my grandmother also lived with us. And when I lived in Atlantic City, my grandmother used to take us to the movies. Uh, I think it was, you know, 35 cents or something, 50 cents. So I know I've loved movies as long as I can remember. Loving movies had very little to do 
with moving to Los Angeles. I didn't become aware of film because of Los Angeles. And, and, and my interest was never particularly in movie stars or that kind of stuff. In fact, when I started working at Village Roadshow, and my mom would know what movies I was working on. It might be, you know, and, and we made movies with major movie stars. My mom would report to me. She loved reading the Goss, you know, the National Enquirer and those kind of papers. And at that time, at least in my memory, th they focused a little more on sort of celebrity gossip and not so much on the, the, the you know, I was impregnated by an alien and that kind of stuff. And she would tell me, about what was going on with somebody I was, you know, was making a movie with us and I would have no idea and she would keep me up to date. So I always loved movies, but it, but it really, I, I didn't love Hollywood or show business. I loved movies. So you had no in. It's not as if when your dad uh, and your family landed in LA, it was a case of, hey, you know, this producer, that producer, he'd worked with this person and whatever. Oh, Oh, no, 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 no. In fact, it couldn't have been farther from that. It, my dad at that point was an auctioneer. Yeah, he still did some concerts and things like that, but it wasn't like he was connected in Hollywood. In fact, in, 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 I think it was in junior high school, maybe my first year of high school, I remember telling my parents that I wanted to do some, um, acting. I wanted to, 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 to go to some kind of acting school. And I didn't want to do it at school because by that point, you know, I was a proficient student. So I was on a sort of certain track and, you know, kind of focusing on drama classes and stuff like that just didn't feel right. So I, 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 I said I wanted to do that outside. And my dad, you know, we had friends in the industry, but mostly people who came to the auction gallery. And I still remember he asked Mike Connors, the guy who played Mannix on a television show that you're probably not familiar with, an American television show from the 70s. And he asked him, like, yeah, my son wants to go to acting school. Where should he go? You know, he's a kid. And Mike referred me to Estelle Harmon, a famous, um, um, you know, sort of acting coach, not just for children, but a lot of children and, and adolescents. And, uh, you know, I would take the bus down to Estelle Harmon Acting Studio on La Brea and, uh, you know, take acting classes. So, yeah, I mean, we knew some famous people. But, no, my dad was not like some kind of – tied in. I mean, literally, I didn't know what CAA was. I don't think I could have named like the major studios. When you meet Hollywood kids today, I mean, they know the names of the agents who run the agencies, the studio heads, direct. I mean, they, they know the industry. That, that was not my experience at all. Not at all. So how many acting lessons did you have? Because I'm taking it, Steve, that you weren't any good because we're talking about you oh. becoming a producer, oh. you know, um, a lawyer as opposed to a, a, you know, a great actor. Well, I, I basically did it for a summer because, you know, at, during school year, it was just impossible to do. So, but yeah, basically I just did it for one summer and then, you know, moved on to other things. I don't think I had any illusions I was going to be some kind of great actor. Was, was it hard? Um, but it was fun. Steve, was it, it was fun, but was it hard? Yeah. Yeah, I think it is hard. I mean, I still remember Estelle. I, mean, I haven't talked about this literally in, God, I mean, probably 35 years since shortly after it happened. But it was hard because it was very serious. I mean, we, in fact, as I recall, you would start out with... Um, 
monologues. Like the first thing you would do is you would start working your way through certain monologues. And for the most part, they were assigned to you. You didn't sort of look at something that you felt resonated with you or you felt like, I get this, I, I know how to do this. It was just like, here's monologue number one. This is what you're going to do in front of the class next week. And sometimes it was something that I felt like I could relate to. And sometimes it wasn't. I remember, in fact, you had to audition. And one of the things they asked in the audition was to act like you were drunk. I think I was probably 14 or 15. I didn't drink. I was not like a kid who went to parties at that age. I, you know, I just had to act like what I thought drunk was based on what I had seen probably in a, in TV and movies. I didn't know what it felt like to be drunk. So yeah, it was hard, but I liked it. And I'm so glad I did it because it was an early introduction into, you know, how actors think and work and are trained and how they do what they do. Of course, I had other experiences later that gave me more of an understanding of that, but it was an, it was a great early one. Also, I think it's instructive for me to try and understand you, that you're, you are a born performer, but you, and you take all of yourself into your performances, whether it is um, the dishwasher diaries. And, and I don't know whether, you know, when you were a lawyer, did you actually go into the courtroom? Oh, no, 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 no. I, 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 my whole legal career um, as a practicing lawyer is strictly a transactional lawyer, okay. right? I, I, I do deal, you know, like, you know, someone's being hired to direct a movie but, and but, I represent them, that, that kind of stuff. But that can be highly performative. Yes, you need to study and be prepped and to know what the parameters of the deal uh, can be. And then you go in there, uh, you know, as hard as you can to get the best deal for your client. But, but you're acting there, aren't you? You, you are... I, I think, I mean, you said you're acting, so you're asking me. Mm -hmm. I'm not for the most part. I, I would say that maybe some people are, but I would, but going back to what you said about being a born performer, because I have thought about this. I think I'm a very, I am in a way, but in a very particular way. And I think Dishwasher Diaries actually is a perfect example of it. And that is largely to the extent that I'm in that sort of performance mode it is almost always improvisational, right? I've given quite a few talks in my life in many different settings from, you know, from, from professional presentations. I was a law professor for 10 years to, you know, a toast at a wedding or a bat mitzvah. And I don't prepare a lot, a few notes, a few ideas. I don't prepare. I don't rehearse. So so I have a bit of this kind of performance personality. You're right. But really overwhelmingly in a, in a spontaneous or improvisational way. So I came into this by talking about acting and then we come on to performance. Um, and, and the two are different, but there's a big overlap between the two. Do you actually truly switch off? Because I get the impression that the Steve that I hear on Dishwasher Diaries or the Steve that I've spoken to a couple of times on the phone, the Steve that I met in the bar, is the same Steve. However, um, can you confirm that for me? Yep, you are right. I, I mean, I, I would say 
I remember a conversation I had once with the mother of a very close friend of mine in a cafe in Jerusalem, of all places. And um, she was a library science professor at the University of Pittsburgh. And we were meeting for only the second time. I had slept on the floor of her living room once during my first year of college when uh, her son and I were doing a little road trip, a little hooky from college. And this was only the first time I'd really chatted with her. And it was her, her, her son was getting married to an Israeli woman. And she made this observation about me, and it's totally 100% spot on. She said, the one thing that you really, really can't abide in other people, the one thing that makes it hard for you to warm up to someone, is what you perceive as a lack of authenticity. Somebody who feels like there's right a shell or there's, it can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's guarded. Sometimes it's insecurity. Sometimes it's just wanting to put on airs. There's lots of different forms that it takes. And that is spot on. And I really do honestly believe that the flip side of that is what you see is what you get with me. I really, yeah. I mean, I'm kind of always like this. I'm doing a little bit of shtick, a little bit when I play football. You know, it's, it, it, this is, yeah, I don't have like an alternate persona that I like click into like when I'm being an entertainment lawyer. I'm kind of the same person that I am. That's just the way I am. If you don't like artifice in others, aren't you ultimately in the wrong profession? Well, that's an interesting question. I, I mean, to some extent, yes. Um, it, people, when I was a teacher, pe people used to ask me, what is the single most important quality that a film producer has to have? This is when I was teaching film producing students in film school. And I gave what is kind of a boring but very practical answer. I said, actually, the number one skill of a film producer is getting other people to do what you want them to do. And maybe that's the greatest skill in life, I don't know, for people who are successful. And I think that getting other people to do what you want them to do often involves artifice. Again, this is not the sense in what you meant the, meant the question, right? I think you were talking about the superficiality, et cetera. But, uh, but that's the way I'm answering it. It, it, it. I'm not comfortable manipulating people or... Or, 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 or using artifice to, to sort of get what I want. It's not, it's not comfortable for me. Again, I think that's not quite the sense in what you meant the question, but that's my answer. But how can that be true, Steve? Right. So if I'm looking at, according to IMDb, right, your time as the president at uh, Village Roadshow Pictures. So it's the Matrix 1999. Analyze this training day. Great film, by the way. One of the top 10 films of all time, training day. 2001, Ocean's 11, 2001, The Matrix Reloaded, The Matrix Revolution, Mystic River, Ocean's 11, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Happy Feet, uh, Ocean's 13. And, and, and then it just kind of stops because you've you got, you got too many ploys here. You must have had to uh, make a lot of people do things they didn't want to do, that you wanted them to do to have that level of su success, whether it is um, negotiating down 
an actor's salary, whether it's getting a director to work some extra days uh, on, on some reshoots, you know, um, it, you're, you're going to have to be deep into doing a lot of things which you say you don't like to do to have this level of success. Well, I mean, first of all, you're giving me too much credit. You're, you, the way you ask the question suggests that I put all those movies together, that I produced all of those movies. And again, that's as we've chatted a little bit offline. That's just not true, right? I was the president of Village Roadshow Pictures. We co-made all of our films with, 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 with Warner Brothers or most of them with Warner Brothers, many of them with other studios. And there were individual producers. There are studio executives. There are creative executives at Village Roadshow. There's all sorts of other people involved in what I think are some of the situations and circumstances that you're imagining when you ask that question. Um, and I have to say, there have been multiple, not multiple, many, many times in my life when I've realized, not just in a business setting, although in a business setting, but others, that I'm not comfortable, this is my word, I don't know that it's the right word, but I'm not comfortable manipulating people. So I've always taken the approach of sort of transparency. This is what I see. This is what I'm trying to do. And is this something you want to do? Right. It, it, it's sort of like I've always felt strongly about a certain kind of autonomy in my relationships, professionally, personally. So I, I don't, I don't feel comfortable twisting people's arms or, or manipulating them. Wait, if I play three-dimensional chess and think seven steps ahead and say this thing to that person and this other thing to that person and it will get back to them and la da da that sort of manipulation or game playing is something that I'm not good at and don't feel comfortable with. And in that sense, I didn't fit in because what I just described, I think that's, like I said, I think that's inherent to being an effective producer, not that there aren't exceptions to the rule, obviously. And I think it's inherent to being successful in a lot of circumstances where you see the picture, you see the pieces, you see the things that you need to make happen, and you lay the groundwork and do what you have to do to make those things happen. You don't just go to people and say, hey, would you be willing to do this? You say, I need them to do it. Now let me figure out how I'm going to make sure that the answer is yes. And I have to say, that's just not the way I've operated in my life. And I think I probably would be more effective in certain things if I did operate that way. But I just never have. So is that maybe one of the reasons why you left uh, the movie business? Yeah, yeah, I think it is. When I left Village Roadshow, um, I became a full-time professor for, for 10 years. And... Right. I mean, academia with it, it has its pros and cons, but it is at least in, in so far as the teaching part of it goes relative, right? It's really, it's, it's, it doesn't have much of what I just described. Right. I mean, maybe getting students to try and see what you want them to see, but I don't think that fits into the, the sort of rubric we were just talking about. I think it is part of the reason I became a, a full-time professor for 10 years. And I loved teaching. I loved interacting with students. It was a ton of fun. Uh, it enabled me, of, you know, to, to, to travel to London every summer because I taught in London every summer. 
And I think that is part of the reason, actually. Yes. And then I got kind of bored and started producing just a few years ago. So, but were you um, bored, then, yeah. Steve? Because you... Well, this is another form of performing, first off. You know? Totally. So... Absolutely. So why did you get bored? Was it because you missed the excitement of being in and around movies? Did you get fed up of just looking at spotty young 20-year-olds and the wide-eyed enthusiasm for life? Or <laughs> was, there, was there another reason why you just became fatigued with uh, the teaching? Yeah, no, I think I became fatigued for, I mean, it's a very mundane reason. I was teaching, to some extent, I would vary things, but, you know, I was teaching the same things a lot. And I always taught contracts. I mean, contract law is sort of the foundational course. Uh, if someone wants to be an entertainment lawyer, I mean, it really does start with contract law. And I think I just got tired of teaching the same subject. Sort of there's a curve. The first time you teach a new subject, and I taught four, five, six different subjects over the course of my teaching career. First time you teach it, right, it's, it can be rough. You know, even if you know the material, because it's a, it's an interact, you, you don't just get up and lecture typically in law school, although some law professors do. There's a, the so-called Socratic method where you're, 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 you're doing this questioning and this give and take. And the first time can be rough. I think by about the third time, if you have a handle on the material, you've probably reached sort of peak. And then you kind of operate at that level for a while. And then it starts to become a little boring, at least to people with a short attention span. When you teach contracts for the seventh time, it, it, it's almost like kabuki theater, right? You know, every question that can be asked, every wrong way of thinking that a student can, you know, every sort of blind alley they can go down. You already see it when they say the first question and you know how to steer them back. And so now it becomes totally performative, right? It, it, remember I said I enjoy that sort of improvisational, spontaneous aspect. Well, when you're still actively working with the student to figure out where they're coming from and why they're not seeing it the way you want them to see it and how to steer them back, now I'm in that improvisational, spontaneous mode that I enjoy. Once I got out of that mode and it was like kabuki theater, I, we know everything that's going to happen, right? Then it just wasn't as fun for me anymore. Um, and also I've had a very episodic career in general. I, I don't think I'm the kind of person who can just do the same thing for 20, 30, 40 years. I mean, I, 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 I worked in advertising after I went to film school. Then I went to law school. I did the law thing for a while. Then I was a film executive. And, and, and each of those episodes has been 10 years or less. It just seems like every 10 years, if that long, I need to do something different. We haven't really talked about you and the law. Or California girls. Notice, notice how you completely forgot that you had asked me about California you know, girls, Steve, but I remember. I, I hadn't. I hadn't. And that was going to be uh, my, my, my last question. Uh, but you, <laughs> you somewhat played, uh, what, three-dimensional chess with me, and you, and you saw that I planted a seed and deliberately then ignored it. And I was going to say, Steve, why, why have you ignored uh, Californian girls? But, and I haven't. So and there. you haven't. And you haven't. You are spontaneous. You like to live on your wits. That's what Dishwasher Diaries is fundamentally about. You can turn and pivot. 
if somebody throws anything at you, invariably you've got an anecdote or you've got some kind of handle on it. And even if you don't, you can give them the space uh, to explain it, draw out the information, and then you can then properly engage with them. You're expert at that. If you so live on your wits and you love spontaneity, you've like been in the moment, why were you attracted to law? Yeah, that's a good question because I'm because I, 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 I'm not sure if I had it to do all over again. It's it's what I would have done, but I think the answer to your question is twofold. One, there's this thing they always talk about when you're thinking of going to law school while you're in law school about thinking like a lawyer. And for better or worse, even though I don't necessarily like to admit it, I do think like a lawyer. Law school was very easy for me relative to a lot of other people. And by that, I don't mean how you know good my grades were or something like that. I just mean the experience, even for people who excel, of adjusting to the way law is taught in America and this idea of thinking like a lawyer, which is really kind of thinking like a lawyer and just kind of thinking like a law student, came easy to me. There wasn't a lot of friction. There wasn't a lot of grinding of the wheels. And so I think part of the reason was that I had an affinity for it. And, and, and I did find legal kind of thinking and legal kind of argumentation interesting. But the truth is that I didn't love being a lawyer. Um, I like being a lawyer and there are certain parts of it that I have enjoyed thoroughly. But when I just think of the span of years in which I've practiced law and for most of my career, I have not, but I, I, I practiced law for a while before I went to Village Roadshow. While I was a professor, I reaffiliated with a law firm and I still represent a very small number of clients for that law firm. It's not my favorite thing to do. And part of that is because the practice of law and learning how to be a lawyer are two very different things. Um, so I think I did it in part because I had an affinity for it and part because I liked that way of thinking. But the truth is what that really meant is I liked being a law student a ton and I just kind of liked being a lawyer. You're going to, um, clerk at the Supreme Court and I spend half of my year in the United States and one of the things which I'm always struck by is the veneration that Americans have for the Constitution because that doesn't exist anywhere else. Nobody in Britain cares about the British Constitution. Germans don't care about the German. Italians ditto theirs or Zimbabweans about theirs. But also there's a, there's a veneration of the Supreme Court but also with uh, the practice of law, which is definitely not British. Why do you think uh, you Americans so fetishize about the judiciary and the Supreme Court before we come on to your time uh, clerking there in the early 90s? Yeah. Well, I think you framed it in terms of the Supreme Court, but you also obviously mentioned the Constitution. And, and I think it's really the Constitution that is driving what you're talking about. And then the Supreme Court is secondary to that. Because, of course, when people in the popular imagination think about the Supreme Court, they're usually thinking about constitutional law, which, of course, is a small part of the Supreme Court docket. 
And I think the reason is because it's so wrapped up in the birth of our country and the mythology of the birth of our country. I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole, but I think it's fair to say that, you know, what we're all taught in school in terms of the story of the colonies, independence from Britain, the, 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 the sort of failed period of the Articles of Confederation uh, culminating with the Constitution, right? That's the birth of our country. That is its founding, its core. And for people who um, have a conservative bent in particular, I think there's even a heightened kind of almost fetish about the Constitution and these ideas of originalism, which you've heard me speak about in other contexts, which I think are silly. But I think putting politics aside, I think that's it. It's the story of the founding of our country. And the Constitution is just such a big part of that story. And the Supreme Court is this group of people charged with interpreting it. And also, not just two of Supreme Court justices, my last thought, uh, but all federal judges, they're appointed for life. I mean, in good behavior, right? But they're appointed for life. I mean, it is the closest we have in American government to royalty. Everyone else elected or appointed can be thrown out of office, elected out of office quite easily. Federal judges, unless they're impeached, which doesn't happen very often, they're there as long as they want to be there. And so I think that's the combination of reasons. Also, it's shrouded in mystery, which I think hasn't hurt it. Mm. It's interesting you talk about impeachment and, and judges because the first impeachment in the United States actually was for a judge uh, in the early yes. 1800s. Yeah. Um, I need to understand um, how you felt um, going into working in the Supreme Court because, as you've said, this is the closest that maybe America has to royalty. Um, you're a young man walking walking into this august establishment. What did it even smell like, Steve? <laughs> it smelled a little musty. Um, yeah, it was. It, it, it truly was a a heady experience. I mean, I didn't just. I wasn't just lucky enough to to get a job there, but my boss was William J. Brennan Jr. Um, and you know, he, he was one of well, my greatest judicial hero. So it was partially just, oh my gosh, I'm working at the Supreme court of the United States. And I think maybe even a little more than that, maybe even a lot more than that. It was, holy heck, I'm, I'm working for justice Brennan. I mean, Baker versus Carr. Uh, one person, one vote. New York Times v. Sullivan, uh, the actual malice standard in libel cases. Uh, I mean, you know, he's just just a giant of American law and also a wonderful, charming, just just captivating man. It was great. And, and, and I have to say, I'll be honest, and I really, this is not false modesty. I wasn't cut from the same cloth as most of the law clerks I was working side by side with. The year I clerked, 
two of the other clerks for other justices the same year are now Supreme Court justices, Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh. And I don't mean to single those two out, but most of the clerks, when they finish clerking, they go to work at fancy firms doing appellate law, arguing cases in appellate courts or the Supreme Court. They go into government policymaking. I mean, they do all that kind of stuff. I finished my clerkship, moved to Los Angeles and went to work at a entertainment law firm, a very small firm that represented Steven Spielberg and Bob Zemeckis and Clint Eastwood and Ben Stiller. I mean, I, so I, I, I wasn't exactly the prototypical Supreme Court law clerk. And the other thing I'll say about that without trying to be too critical of anyone else or, or, or sound like I'm patting myself on the back. A lot of the clerks felt like the reason I'm here is because I'm one of the 40 odd smartest law graduates from, you know, a year ago. You typically don't go straight to the Supreme Court. You clerk for another judge first. Whereas my feeling was happenstance, luck, you know, it, 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 kismet. I, I mean, I, so I, I, I think I, 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 my head was in a slightly different space than maybe some of the other co-clerks. I didn't feel anointed. I felt lucky and tickled. <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Who was the most impressive? Gorsuch or Kavanaugh? Who's the most impressive um, person? <laughs> well, it, it, I have to give a specific answer to that. The answer is I, I can't compare, and there's a very specific reason. Uh, Neil Gorsuch, like I, was hired by a Supreme Court justice who was retired. So when I started at the Supreme Court, Justice Brennan was already retired. And so the arrangement I had, which was literally the best arrangement of any law clerk is half of my time. And by that, I don't mean 50%, but notionally I would spend half my time doing things for justice Brennan, assisting him with law review articles. He was writing speeches. He was teaching a course at Georgetown. And I would spend the other half of my time taking a 50% load of case assignments from justice Souter, who replaced Justice Brennan, who took Justice Brennan's seat. So I was just like every other Justice Souter clerk, except I was assigned half the number of cases of the other clerks. Neil clerked for Justice White, who was also retired, but he had a very different arrangement. Justice White was traveling around the country sitting by designation. Believe it or not, you can go into a court to argue a case in federal court and appeal in front of three judges. 
And one of the judges may not be a judge who sits on that court. She could be traveling from another jurisdiction, taking a two-month vacation in Hawaii. And they can allow her to sit by designation on an appeal in Hawaii. And she's one of the judges deciding the case. Well, Supreme Court justices can do that too. And that's what Justice White did a lot. And so I didn't really get to know Neil very well because he was traveling, as I remember it, traveling a lot with Justice White to Colorado and other places. And he wasn't sort of around all the time. Um, so I can't really compare them. Um, Brett was working for an act of justice, so he was always there. Uh, I remember him. Um, and that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> I do remember him. Well, I reckon Neil Gorsuch seems, seems like a nicer chap. Brett Kavanaugh, more problematic. What do you reckon, Steve? Based uh, on things other than my time at the Supreme Court, uh, that seems to be clearly the case, but um, that's a low bar. <laughs> right. Um, we've gone on talking uh, for much longer than I actually planned, so it's about time to... Uh, Say to the good audience, why don't you come up and ask uh, the great man a question? But what's my last question to you, Steve? Well, this thing about California girls, I mean, it's so boring. I mean, remember, I moved here. I got to Los Angeles when I was 12 years old. And here's the way I'll answer the question. Again, like everything else, it's just kind of who I am. Despite the fact that I moved here when I was 12 and left Atlantic City or Margate, to be more accurate, when I was eight, I'm very kind of East Coast in my, whatever, I don't know, my temperament, my, the way I come across. I mean, people assume I'm from New York. And I would say that carried over into the sort of women I was attracted to. So the, the sort of stereotypical, I guess when people say California girl, right, you think I blonde and sort of, there's a certain set of assumptions about that. And I guess I would just say simply, that was just never my kind of girl. So, so even from the, my very youngest, you know, romantic encounters as a, as a young kid, I was never really attracted to California girls, if that has any meaning other than a woman who happens to be in California. That just wasn't my thing. So I don't know what else to say about that. Uh, you've had an hour of me uh, droning on. Uh, trying to find some questions that do honour to the to the intellect, the spirit, and the wit of Steve Crone, and uh, I've run out of puff. So now it, it's your turn, uh, Justin Higgins. Uh, ask your question, sir. Thank you, Royfield. I'm very excited, actually, and I'm honestly excited to ask Steve a couple questions here. First one's going to be an easy one, Steve. Did Brett Kavanaugh like beer? I believe he did. Yes. <laughs> okay. So that is consistent with his testimony. He wasn't perjuring himself in that way. Um, no, but on a more serious note, uh, having clerked for, uh, you know, two Supreme Court justices and experiencing the law at its really the highest level and the just walking in D.C. around the buildings, anybody who works in these buildings in Congress, I'm sure it's the same way in the Supreme Court you get this uh, sense of gravity and weight in what you're doing. Did you ever consider eventually attempting to be a judge? And if not, uh, why didn't that appeal to you? I mean, the short answer is for half a second. 
just like when I was in film school, I went to USC film school as an undergraduate. For half a second, I thought, you know, I'll be a director. I think for half a second, I thought, hmm, I wonder if I would want to be a judge. I mean, I spent two years working for three judges. Um, but I never seriously considered it because I, I just, I, I think, A, I don't think I have the temperament for it. it. Certainly being an appellate judge is a very solitary existence, right? You spend a lot of time in your chambers with a couple of other people. You hear cases, but it's it's there's not a lot of human interaction. There's not a lot of team building. It's not my thing. And the other is, I don't think I would have enjoyed the, the sort of judicial craftsmanship, the work of putting aside how much human interaction it involves. Fundamentally, what does an appellate judge do? They decide cases and then they draft opinions. And the idea of that being a primary activity of just sort of cranking out those opinions. Oof, no, not, not for me, not for me. So I never seriously, right? It's impossible for it not to cross your mind, but I never seriously considered it. And then um, Royfield, if you'd be so kind, one more follow-up, Steve. I'm obviously an outsider <clears throat> to Hollywood, but we have this view at least before the Me Too movement, I'm sure it's largely the same, uh, unfortunately, that Hollywood is a very kind of white man-driven, patriarchal organization where the stars kind of treat those beneath them like crap. And a lot of, I don't know, illicit, nefarious things happen to those people who are just earnestly trying to climb up the ladder. Can you kind of shed some light on your experience in Hollywood and if that is an accurate or just, you know, an inaccurate trope of the industry? Well, I think like most, you know, most sort of stereotypes, it's it's accurate to a degree, right? It's 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 obviously not some sort of fantasy. Uh it it might be a little bit of a caricature. I mean, I've met lots of wonderful people who work in all aspects of the industry, but in film, as in, it seems just about every other aspect of, you know, business and our society, we're seeing what an endemic problem, the sorts of things you just asked about are. And so it's hard to, I'll be honest, it's right. It's hard to answer that question in a way that both reflects my personal experience but acknowledges and honors what we all know to be a pervasive problem. I did not run across a lot of that in my career. Uh, I, I, I didn't. But, but again, I mean, like all anecdotal evidence <laughs> of very limited usefulness. So, you know, I think it is a huge problem. I think it's changing. Uh, certainly in terms of representation, it's changing. I think in the executive ranks, in the decision-making ranks in terms of what shows will get developed, what movies will get made, the sort of day-to-day work. Maybe not all the studio heads, not, you know, and it hasn't percolated up to that level yet. But I think great progress is being made on that front. In terms of harassment, both sexual and otherwise, 
I think that's harder and trickier, right? Um, to root out. So I think it's getting better, but I still think it's a huge problem. But, but again, anecdotally, it, it is not, I don't have horrible experiences or things that I saw. And certainly it should go without saying, but it obviously doesn't. If I had, and I certainly ran across other kinds of impropriety, um, I did something about it. You know, when I saw something that wasn't right, I acted. Um, and I had enough power to be able to. Um, but unfortunately, not everyone does. Thank you for those questions there, Justin. Just, just on Hollywood, I've always thought, I think like most people, that, um, that Hollywood is this really liberal kind of kind of institution and 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 the older i get the more i've I've kind of realized for me anyway this is somewhat of a nonsense this is a deeply conservative industry for another reason then it's about the bottom line fundamentally money yes there is this element which is about creativity and to to maximize that bottom line there needs to be some level of kind of invention um which which kind of leads towards new ways of thinking. But am I deep? Am I mistaken in thinking that Hollywood is fundamentally a very conservative network, Steve? Well, I think the problem in that question is how you define the terms, right? When most people say Hollywood is liberal, what they mean is that the personal political orientation of most of the people, you know, not anywhere near a hundred percent, obviously is what we think of as liberal slash left in this country as opposed to conservative slash right in this country. I think that's accurate. I mean, I think the perception that if you just go across industries, right, um, film and television, law enforcement, insurance sales, right, and you just ask the question in each of those industries, yeah, Hollywood is more liberal than most of the others that you'll ask about, certainly not all of them. But at the same time, it's big business with lots of money at stake, like you said, and lots of people who love making lots of money. And so sometimes those people make decisions that are driven by something other than their values. Um, I see a lot of that. And I have many stories. See, I don't have a lot of anecdotes about people being terribly mistreated or sexual harassment or I didn't, but I do have stories about people making poor ethical choices and having to do something about that. That's quite common. And again, I don't think that's unique to, to the film industry. I think it's, it's, it's something I've been preoccupied with for a lot of my life. Actually, why is it that in organizations, especially business organizations, People will do things. People will make decisions that are unethical and that I don't think they would make in other contexts. It, what happens to them? Right? I don't believe that everybody who's in business is just a money-grubbing, unethical maniac. And so it just attracts those people and then they just act consistent with their values, which is not to say that I don't think that doesn't happen sometimes. But I think sometimes even people who have a good ethical compass, somehow it, 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 the needle doesn't work when they, when they get into these situations. And I think there must be people smarter than me studying that and trying to understand it. But I certainly saw it a lot when, when I was in business and, 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 and at times had to take 
rather severe action because of it. It kind of came to my view that Hollywood is a deeply conservative kind of institution um, because of actually watching the Netflix series Hollywood, which um, kind of reimagines the 1940s, early 1950s. And at that time, there are a lot of gay um, actors uh, in and around Hollywood, whether they're directing or writing, but they have to hide their sexuality um, in terms of the public, the public persona. And that's what really made me realize that um, the entertainment industry could have actually been a real vanguard for uh, change in America um, and actually has abrogated that responsibility historically. And maybe focusing in on the late 40s and 50s is the wrong time because we have McCarthyism and, and, and the Red Scare. But definitely when that went, um, actors were still hiding their sexuality. People of color weren't. Uh, it was still almost like a, a closed shop. But I'm not knocking at the entertainment industry per se. I quite like movies. Well, I was just going to say, everything you just said is accurate, but I think you answered your own question, right? In that time frame, uh, yeah, the entertainment industry wasn't just conservative. It was, it was reactionary and oppressive in ways that have improved to some extent. But yeah, I, I think asking about the, the industry today, not that some of those legacies don't, aren't still relevant, but I think the Hollywood of 2021 is significantly different than the Hollywood of, you know, 1955. Is long-form TV killing the movies, Steve? You know, Game of Thrones, fantastic. You get deeper writing, um, greater character studies. Is that killing the movies? No, I don't think so. Um, and I don't think movies are going anywhere. I think, I think the death of, uh, the, the, you know, to paraphrase... I always get it wrong. I, can't, I can never remember if it's, um, if it's, um, well, never mind. <laughs> the death of movies, the death of movies has been greatly exaggerated, right? I forget, is that Will Rogers? The reports of my death have been greatly exaggerated, or is it, uh, I forget wh what author said that. But anyway, I, I think, look, the movie business is facing enormous challenges. No question about it. But the idea that movies are dead, the idea that there will be no movie theaters in five years. No, no, no. Years, I'm saying, is it killing? I, I, I didn't yeah. say, has it murdered? <laughs> no, I don't think it's killing it. I think, I think it's changing it. Um, and, and obviously, there are a bunch of trends which I don't particularly like, right? The, and, and now, we're, let's be clear. We're talking about American cinema because world cinema is a much more complicated conversation. But, you know... The big studios are making way fewer movies than they did when I was at Village Roadshow. The percentage of those movies that are tentpole, blockbuster, you know, either superhero or some other genre that's designed to be for the masses, very expensive to make, must make a lot of money. You know, that, that's one trend that, that obviously is is crowding out other movies, um, at least insofar as they're being made by those companies. Um, obviously, streaming is 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 a very important development. Um, so, the, and, and there are others, but but I still think the idea of the feature film 
as the audiovisual equivalent of the novel where you you it's 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 one experience beginning middle and end you're done it's over you read the last page of that book maybe this author's going to write another book maybe they're not but that experience is still an experience that people want to have and movies are still in my opinion the art form of the 20th century and i think maybe at least a big chunk of the 21st century or um and and i don't think that wonderful series is killing that it's having an impact changes need to be made maybe there'll be less movie theaters in the united states 5 years from now than there are now Maybe they'll be doing some different things than they're doing now besides showing movies. But I don't think movies are being murdered. I think maybe they're being beat up a little, but they're going to be okay. Cole Fells, you've been waiting on stage for some time. Hey, this is a great, great interview. Thank you so much for this review. And uh, I, I just I have two questions and I have a comment to make on something that Steve had mentioned earlier. Steve, you, you, you said that uh, something that I truly believe in, uh, you said that uh, the great thing, the best thing that you need to learn as a director or as a producer is to get people to do their job. There's a uh, author, his name is Cleon Skousen, and he poses the phil- philosophical question, was what makes a leader great? He says, is it the calling? You know, is it the, the president? If it, is the president great because of his calling or is the president great because he gets people to do his job or in anybody in any position? He, he talks about, uh, he gives an example of a, a bishop in a church. He says, what, what makes a bishop great? He says, people doing the work. And why do they do that work? They do that work because they want to support the bishop. They have a love for their leader. And uh, I, I just found that very interesting when you when you mentioned that, I, I have a question about the University of Chicago. Did you happen to have, take an economics class from Professor Milton Friedman? And if yes, would you have a story about him? I did not. I think I could be wrong, but I think now I was an undergraduate at the University of Chicago for one year, and then I went back for law school. But I believe Milton Friedman was gone already. He uh-huh. may have been there when I was a college student, but I think even then he may have already been gone. So I did take an economics class at the University of Chicago in my first year there, uh, but it wasn't with Milton Friedman, so no Milton Friedman story. My, my, my second question is, who's better in uh, one-on-one, you or Obama? <laughs> well, I, I've never played basketball with Obama, although many of my classmates did. I didn't talk about this. I did not know President Obama when he when I was a law student, although he was there, not as a student, but he had some sort of teaching research fellowship, like very shortly after he graduated from Harvard. And that was at the University of Chicago. So there were classmates of mine who did play basketball with him, but I didn't meet him until, as I mentioned, when I went back to teach at Chicago and, and Judge Mikva introduced us. Um, but watching him play, I'm pretty confident that he's better than me. Thank you very much. Um, I appreciate this. This has been wonderful. 
thank you again for the the session. Really cool. Dana. Oh, I don't have anything to add. I just came up because uh, it, uh, you guys are some of my favorite people on Clubhouse, and I've, I've really enjoyed listening to this conversation getting to know you better, Steve. But it was Mark Twain, Steve, by the way. I was going to I could. Can you believe I, t- I couldn't t- think of Mark Twain? I was getting. Really I was like, it's that. either Mark Twain or Will Rogers, but literally I couldn't get the name Mark Twain to come to my mind. Uh, June, uh, you've decided to join us. Uh, why don't you ask a question? Yes, I have a question for Steve. I never talk to him usually in the dishwasher diaries, but um, I was wondering, um, you know, when HBO and the cable companies became kind of huge in Hollywood, had you ever considered, um, you know, working along with them, making films with them, making becoming a programming executive instead of being an independent producer? I didn't personally. I mean, I, I mean, my path to Village Roadshow was so direct. You know, I, I was an entertainment lawyer and then I went to Village Roadshow because one of my clients became the chairman of Village Roadshow. And so I went over initially in sort of a business and legal capacity and then sort of evolved into a, you know, a general, into a general executive. Um, so I didn't personally, I mean, I, I, you know, my entire time as a Hollywood executive was at Village Roadshow. Um, so no, I didn't, <laughs> I don't know what else to say about that. I asked that because so many of the um, creatives at HBO were in fact lawyers. In fact, the head of, when I was there, the head of HBO yes. was indeed um, Michael Fuchs was a lawyer. And I think subsequently several others. So That's right. Several of the heads. Seem to be a natural path. And I don't, you seem, honestly, you seem like an HBO guy to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I certainly have liked a lot of their, a lot of their programming over the years. I think there was a time, in fact, when the head of all of the major studios uh, were lawyers, all of the major film studios. This was back in the 80s or 90s. I think every single one was a lawyer. And I think right now, none of them are lawyers, I think. So, yeah, it's interesting. It, you know, I guess there are ways. I think there are more marketing people who have become hit. Uh, June, uh, thank you uh, for that excellent question. Um, You're right, Philip. Oh, I don't know if you were stuck in the Matrix. Pun completely intended, uh, me saying that, considering we got Steve Crone. Uh, in Every- Royfield, I have to tell you, that has become the phrase for when, you know, someone's breaking up. And it's so weird to me every time I hear that. Because, like, The Matrix just, I don't know, it has a different ring in my ear, I think, than most people's. And I just find it, it's almost distracting when I hear people say, oh, sorry, Bob, we can't hear you. You're stuck in The Matrix. And I just, I don't know, it just flashes me back to, you know, the late 90s and the early 2000s in a very weird way. Uh, last question from me, unless someone's going to jump up on stage. But Steve, do you think we could have learnt more about you from just watching you unpack or maybe pack your dishwasher and we could have saved ourselves one hour and 25 minutes in the process? Well, clearly, no. There's at least a chance you could have learned as much about me by talking about packing and unpacking the dishwasher for that long. But just watching me do it, now I think you'd learn almost nothing. Steve Crone, uh, this has been utterly wonderful. It's been a long time coming, sir. 
Um, you are, as I said at the uh, top of this show, uh, one of the most captivating uh, people on, on Clubhouse. It almost feels like th this app was kind of designed for you. you you're a, a wit. Uh, you're, you've got a man of fearsome intelligence. You're incredibly gracious. Uh, you're kind. You're a great conversationalist. Thank you for coming on to Intelligent Speech and uh, gracing us uh, with a bit of your time. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, it's been great. Thank you for saying all those nice things. You're so sweet. And yeah, no, it's been a pleasure. I well, love it. I, what I don't understand is why a man with your undoubted intelligence supports Chelsea. You know, that, that, is, that is the fundamental, that is your kryptonite, isn't it? That, see, so you said you were going to close with California girls, but you were saving this Chelsea haymaker for the, you, unbelievable. You're unbelievable. So look, Here's what I'll tell you. European champions, my friend. Two-time European they champions. Cup. Defending they, European champions. They bought champions. that trophy. And, uh, it, it, by the way... With little grace. With, 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 with little class. Here's, you know what this reminds me of, Royfield? And again, I'm not, I didn't grow up in England. I haven't been a Chelsea fan for 57 years. Um, but, it, and this isn't meant as a criticism, but it does remind... I get it. Right, you have this experience of this team from a, a, a prior, you know, period, and that's a legacy for you that is just like you can't get past that. This is a question for you, and maybe to educate me. Do you look at the club today and say this is in the fabric of the club. It's not about just history. For instance, like I know a lot of people who won't support Madrid, Real Madrid, because that was Franco's team, right? I mean, whatever, it's just a bad association for them. They're not claiming anything about the current team or the people who run the team. So is your, is your contention that there's just an ugly history there and therefore you don't want to associate yourself in any way with that team or are you actually making a commentary about the current organization does that question make sense? make sense both and <laughs> that's, that's the answer so you got to educate me about the latter because the former whatever i mean i'm I, I you know if it was you know i came to chelsea in a very organic way and that kind of i adopted them as my team uh, you know, so so you and I will continue to talk about well, this. Well, yes, Steve Crone, thank you for coming on to Intelligent Speech. Thank you, Justin Higgins. Thank you, Dana. Thank you, Coldfells. Thank you, June Winters, uh, for asking a question, and also thank you uh, for sticking around as you have done. If you've been in the audience for the last hour and a half, um, you can listen to this. Uh, this isn't just an ephemeral conversation on Clubhouse. This will be a podcast. I'll put this up in about a week or so time on the feed Intelligent Speech. Uh, so if you just type in my name, Royfield Intelligent Speech, uh, that you'll see the podcast. And again, we've been honoured to have one of my best friends. Because that's how we, we came into this. I asked, are we friends? And we're definitely, uh, we are friends. We're mates. We're wow. mothers. Wait, Royfield, in an hour and a half, this is, if we've accomplished nothing else in an hour and a half, we've gone from Steve, are we really friends, well, to I'm one of your well, best friends. Listen, no, no, I, that I is an incredible accomplishment. Steady. I says, you know, we're friends. Oh, well, you got to play back the tape. I think well, you said then, close friend. Play oh, back no, the it's tape. gone from best to close. Well, I might play have back many the tape. Close you friends, tell me Steve. what it says. But listen, 
I love this. I love this was a good thing, not a bad thing. But I think kind of at the core of our conversation, the way that we started, is this question of relationships and how much do we truly know people? And a lot of it is what's what we glean back, isn't it? And the emotions uh, that someone elicits uh, within us. And you, my brother, elicit good remote, uh, emotions within me. So you are my friend. Thank you for that drink in San Francisco. And thank you uh, for illuminating um, our company in the last hour and a half, sir. Thanks, man. That was awesome. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Right on. Thank you.